sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Bienvenidos, Suvinchis, and welcome to episode 56 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And you might remember two episodes ago when I talked to J.M. Crevier, Green Party candidate whose experience dealing with the healthcare systems of the U.S. and Canada led him to become a fan of Canada's single-payer model. And it's well known that on a per capita basis, we spend twice as much on healthcare as the average for other wealthy nations. You may have seen the write-up on YDHTY.com that talked about how we could save $1 trillion just by bringing our costs down to the level of number two in terms of per capita spend. Now, given the U.S. healthcare system also has arguably worse outcomes than our peers, it begs the question, WTF? That's standing for what is the function of all that extra money? Well, it being the last episode of the month notwithstanding, this was clearly a job for the data monkey, so I lit up the monkey signal and he came to the rescue. Now, the short of it is, all that extra money is not going to us. Big surprise. The details will be filled in on our trip to Monkey Town. I'll be back at the end with final thoughts. So I'll kick it off with a thought I had this morning, uh, which is, you know, normally we postulate what is the dumbest thing that's going to happen between now and when this episode is released, because 2020 has thrown us a lot of curveballs. And and I know when we were talking, we didn't really have anything because uh, this this has actually been a remarkably kind of undumb month, dare I say, under 2020 uh, you know, under, under the benchmark of 2020 holistically. Uh, but then I thought to myself this morning, you know, the democratic national convention happened last week. And did you, did you catch any of it or, or no? I, I turned it on. It was all very awkward. For some reason there was like, you know, everybody was on sort of zoom or they were being videoed in, in isolated places. And for some reason, the, the feed between these places always had like, maybe it was to, to try to keep them from saying anything incredibly bad. There was like a delay always. So just the whole thing seems so awkward and strange. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of felt like I shouldn't be there. Like I was like, I kind of logged into the wrong meeting and was just sitting eavesdropping. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing that, that came out of the convention for me though, the best piece of feedback that they had about Biden was that he could give a speech. Yeah. That was like the, he can give a speech. Like he gave a speech. Did you hear him? Come on, man. That's like saying before you got in this program where you're taking cocaine. Because, you know, Trump has been touting this, this theory that he's senile and can't string a sentence together and blah, blah, blah. That certainly sounds like somebody who's running for president. Wrong. Exactly. So, so yes, but but everybody comes out and they're like, he gave a speech. He gave a speech. Do you hear that? He could give a speech. And I'm like, how low are our standards now? Like, how far have we sunk as a nation when somebody being able to deliver a coherent speech is presidential? Yeah, well, how many times did we hear today was the day Donald Trump became president, right? Over the last four years, every time he managed to give like a half a speech that wasn't just yeah. completely outrageous or didn't include some, you know, horrific statement of misogyny or, uh, you know, other, um, you know, degrading of, of some minority, uh, it would, you know, he, he, he was suddenly, that was his moment to be presidential. So we've, we've really kind of lowered the bar so far that it's, it's just kind of lying on the floor at this yeah. point. You can just sort of step over it with like, Hey, D- Dan, Dan can speak. I mean, he mm-hmm. has a podcast. Have you heard him? He, he talks. I can speak. <laughs> Make me president. I can string a sentence together. 
Well, I mean, that's what happens when you have two people running for president who are each about 183 years old. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it, 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 you know, you have those people in your life who, you know, who always seem to like just date or be in relationships with just disasters. And you're like, why do they always like, how come every time they get together with someone, they're just, they're totally, you know, just absolutely the wrong people. And I kind of get it now. I kind of get it. Like, yeah. I get it. Like, I mean, it's sort of, it's, you know, it, it really does like one more, it's create what creates one more argument for, for libertarians, right. To just say like, you know, these parties ultimately are, 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 are making their bid to run the country. So the government is run by these same people. Yes. And if they can't seem to like pull together like a logical, they own like choice that doesn't sort of, it doesn't seem like lunatic in hindsight. And yet that's who's typically always running things and making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the prediction for this week isn't what is the dumbest thing that's going to happen. It is what is the most underwhelming praise that either the Republicans or Donald Trump are going to get for this week's Republican National Convention? What is the most underwhelming piece of praise and if you need time to think about it, I no, guess I mean, I, I, I was trying to come up with a funnier way to say it, but it's going to be somewhere along the line of like Trump and the Republicans don't paint apocalyptic vision of us. Yeah. I mean, that, a- it's going to be because like, they're going to be, like, Oh, he actually said like hope once or twice. And you know, they, they talked about, you know, things being better at some point. Wow. That's, it didn't just talk about everything spiraling down a drain. Hey, I guess that's positive. Yeah. I'm, I'm teetering on, uh, factually correct. And which, <laughs> dead. Which, that would be a stretch, right? Actually, that would be, that would, that would not be underwhelming. That would be I a mean, no less than, uh, six of the 12 highlighted speakers at this thing are Trump family members. Uh, and he's speaking every night. Oh, so yeah. All right. the idea that they're going to get through that entire thing uh, and be factually correct is I, th- I think you've set the bar a little too high. You're going to trip right over that bar. All right. Well, maybe the second one, no new minority groups alienated. Okay. All right. That one I could, I want, I can get there. Does he have any one left? That, well, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I think, I think there, it's actually a very small target. So, uh, so yeah, as long as he doesn't, you know, go after Pacific Islanders or something like that. I think he'll be. Uh, so there you go. You just put it out there. No, it's that's the maybe he'll suddenly he's going to be like you know uh... <laughs> declare war on Tonga. Yeah. Granted, I understand too for people listening. I understand everybody is super gun shy about any message that does not explicitly endorse one of the two major party candidates because realistically you are, you know, realistically, it's, it's, it both are painting a very stark, uh, difference in outcome, you know? And, and so I understand that, uh, on the same token, I think we can all agree that let's just, let's just agree that this is what we've got today. This is the situation. We can't change what already happened. So if we feel compelled to vote, major party, vote major party. If you feel, if you're teetering on third party, but you really don't like one of the candidates, just vote for the major party candidate. Just do that. Consider it like wearing a mask. You don't want to do it, but we're in a, we're in a difficult situation. But let's also acknowledge that we could do better. Let's just all acknowledge that after this, we're going to try to figure out something better than this and try to make sure that 2024 isn't another underwhelming election season. You know, I, that's a good point, Dan, because, I mean, there are, we're going to get to sort of per capita discussions around healthcare when we get on with this. So oh, let's we start, are. So let's start here. There are 328 million people in the country. Uh, roughly two-thirds of those are in the workforce. Are we saying mm-hmm. that these are the absolute best resumes we can get for these jobs? Yeah. Really? Really? Right. Right. Really? Like, yeah. you, and you're going to go down swinging in defense of, you know, Biden and or Trump, like as the best of the best, these are the peak resumes you can get for the most powerful job in the world. That sort of says a lot. 
I mean, this is kind of why I go back. I mean, I, I, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but this is why I've always been puzzled by the Republicans' hatred of Romney, their own candidate at one point, right? I know he couldn't kind of bring home the win versus yeah. incumbent, so they can't stand it. Um, and he didn't, you know, just, you know, make horrifically off-color jokes about minorities um, to own the libs. So there's, yeah. so there's that. But, um, you know, the guy had a stellar resume. And I have yet to hear one conservative explain to me what would have been different, you know, under a Romney administration from a Trump administration in terms of the things that they accomplished. Like you'd still get, you'd still get conservative judges under Romney. You'd still get, uh, probably an anti-immigrant. You'd probably have some, some like strong, um, immigration, you know, reform or enforcement, you know, based on his track record, what he used to talk about. And it would Mm -hmm. actually probably make some sense as opposed to just sort of lunacy of, you know, wall building. Um, and so I'm, I'm at a, I'm at a loss to sort of, you know, if you take out the sort of the, the getting conservative judges, which I think you'd get other, both of them, what, what are you getting? What did you get from Trump that you haven't, that you, you wouldn't have gotten tax reform. I'm sure Romney would have probably done tax reform and it probably would have made more sense as opposed to blowing, you know, a trillion dollar hole in the, um, you know, the deficit. Um, so we could have a little buyback, you know, stock buyback party. So, um, I I just, yeah, I don't know. It's there are better resumes out there. Oh, there absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think what, 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 Trump got was he got the the upper Midwest. He got all those, um, you know, he got all the folks who were maybe what you'd call your Reagan Democrats from years ago, and just managed to build a different coalition. Um, and I and I think ultimately, you've probably heard the analogy boiling a frog ad nauseum. Correct? Yes. Yeah, we anyone who's, a lot of frogs in this country these days. We're boiling a ton of frogs. So, for those of you who haven't been at a work meeting and heard somebody say "boiling a frog," uh, basically the idea, and I don't think anybody's ever tested this theory out, but apparently, if you put a frog in a pot of water, you turn on the heat, the frog will just sit there and boil because the frog can't sense the change in water temperature over time as it gradually increases. I don't quite get how the frog doesn't sense the hot pot bottom and jump out. I don't quite get that part and never tested it, but that's the idea. And, and I feel like America is a frog that's been boiled. You know, I feel like we have not, I think, I think the anger is very real. I think the distrust is very real. Uh, and I think that, uh, they've, those feelings, those sentiments have been very cleverly directed uh, or diverted towards uh, opponents uh, or, or a, per- a candidate's political opponents. And, and Trump is very masterful at this. He's very masterful at taking that anger and directing it in the right areas. Um, and But at, at its core is the fact that Americans aren't being taken care of. We are just not. It's just not the, the economy is not structured in a way where there isn't continually more and more pressure put on the backs of average people for no societal benefit. And one of those areas that I uncovered this month was, uh, was healthcare. And one of the things I asked, you know, you to come and and talk about, because, uh, as, as I kind of spoke with a few of the different folks, you know, J.M. Crevere, who's a Green Party candidate out in Michigan, um, he had a very interesting perspective on uh, on the U.S. and Canadian healthcare systems, having been in in both. Uh, the guest after that, Nick uh, Nick Hensley from the Reform Party, uh, had a lot to say about the influence of money in in politics. And you know, what I discovered in in my conversation with JM is that. We've effectively, you know, the big the big fear or the big argument for healthcare is I don't want a big bureaucracy making my healthcare decisions. And in my conversations with JM, I kind of realized like we already do, right? No, for sure, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, has anyone? I mean, really, is anyone listening? Well, excuse. Uh, well, with the exception of the maybe the, um, the residents of Lower Saxony, uh, yes. Germany, the um, the those U.S. Folks who are listening, 
have you not spent like an hour or two on hold with your uh, healthcare insurer to find out? Like, I mean, or gotten a bill, or a, or, or a, a bill, yeah, a bill that made no sense that like you could not, for the life of you, figure out what you were being billed for or what was supposed to be, uh, what you what was covered and what wasn't. It couldn't be any more obtuse. What I wanted to dive into today was the current healthcare bureaucracy. What does it mean for us in terms of costs and in terms of outcome? I do have a, a, some unique insights on the idea that I have. Uh, I was a healthcare analyst specifically mm-hmm. for um, part of my career, uh, so I can. Um, I am familiar with just the insanity that is the U.S. healthcare system, at least to some degree. So let's talk about it maybe from from two angles. One, just the one we'd all expect to sort of say, which is that the health expenditures per capita in the U.S. versus elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we spend almost twice as much mm-hmm. um, as the rest of the world. And I, I don't, I'd have to go look and, and find some more data on this, but I'm pretty sure we don't have the healthiest people in the world. No, um, no. And so... So obviously something's a little, a little off kilter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the f- things that gets said a lot in this discussion, and I, I know you and I have a mutual friend who works in pharmaceutical industry, and and usually the first counterpoint, and I even used to make this counterpoint before I looked mm-hmm. at the numbers more closely, but um, is that well, the U.S. underwrites the R and D for the rest of the world. So that's getting lumped into the cost. I have made that point before. Right. But so did you ever no. actually look to see what does that do to the cost? No. I mean, these are, these I, are numbers we can know, right? So like, no. um, so if you look at that, and on the one hand, that is kind of true. Like of total pharmaceutical R&D globally, right? The U.S. accounts for almost 60% of it. You know, the next biggest one is Japan at 13 and then Switzerland at seven with Novartis and some of these other companies, right? Um, you know, Germany at, at six and then it falls off pretty quick after that. So the top four, including the U.S., are 85% of the total and the U.S. is 60% of that or close to it. Uh, so that sounds like a lot. Like, okay, so yeah, we must be kind of underwriting that, right? So what? So estimated total annual pharma R&D spend is like $180 billion. So if we're 60% of it, that's $108 billion. We have 328 million people per capita, so that's $330 per capita versus a $10,000 per capita healthcare spend. So that's yeah. 3%. So that's, and- that would be 3% of the total. And then add on top of that, like, but, you know, the U.S. spends 10000 per capita versus a country average of, of the all the developed world is closer to 5000 mm-hmm. So, okay, so that accounts for 3% of it. But what about med tech? Okay, with like med tech R&D. Med tech R&D is way less than pharma R&D. We spend a lot more in pharmaceutical R&D than we do on med tech. So okay. that's probably like a quarter of the, of the um, annual pharma R&D. So... Uh, so that maybe adds another, call it fifty, sixty, seventy dollars per capita. Like so. So we're already like we're like it's, so we're, it's like four hundred dollars. So basically, we're saying like if if you, if the per capita difference is five thousand dollars, well, less than ten percent of that number is actually this can be accounted for in the fact that we all this R and D or differential R and D spending. Yeah, and so, and to put those numbers in perspective too, because I I I did. I did some research for this after my interview with JM for the the blog article that everyone can check out on ydhty.com along with a follow-up blog article to this conversation. Um, yeah, the, the, the U.S., uh, I, I believe in 2017, I took those figures, spent 17% of GDP on healthcare. The second highest, which is Switzerland, was 12% average against an average of eight. So we are a full, and and to put to put those numbers in perspective, that percentage effectively equates to a one trillion dollar difference in spending, one yeah. trillion. Yeah. So so we don't spend mm-hmm. like so it's not all accounted for in in research and development is I guess the the point. Yeah, um, yeah. So while that may be true, it certainly doesn't account for everything. So mm-hmm. we do have to ask the question of like where else are we um, finding? So then. 
So let's talk about the big bureaucracy is the other question, right? So one thing I know you and I had sort of briefly talked about, because I wanted to to sort of think about it from this perspective is, mm-hmm. um, you know, what does it cost us in terms of the profits of for-profit, you know, public, private healthcare companies at, um, you know, to, to administer all this. And, you know, it, because it relates to your point about what are we, you know, what are we paying for the, for the quote, lack of bureaucracy, right? If the government doing it all was going to be this giant bureaucracy, then, uh, then clearly we're getting this better result by, um, by having, uh, you know, for-profit private healthcare insurers, um, run a large portion of the market. And mm-hmm. the, you know, they healthcare for profits last year amounted to close to $36 billion. So basically 1% of your total healthcare spend is going, is in the net profits to healthcare insurers. Um, that is understating it because that's against total spend where, cause that's not all private spending, right? Cause they're not administering all of it. Um, okay. so only about half the market or so is, so you're actually spending about 2% of the private spending is, is in profits back to, you know, shareholders of for-profit healthcare insurance companies to, to administer healthcare. Okay. Now compare that to, you know, the total cost of the government administration is about the same, like okay. in terms of, you know, it's about 40, 48 billion to do the other half. So, <laughs> um, so quick question for you. Yeah. When you talk about government administration, does that mean, are you talking about like sort of government sponsored healthcare, like Medicare, Medicaid, or is there something else? there you're talking about uh you know this is where we're going to run into the problem of not having enough time um this is going through the ama's numbers on uh total spend so i'm assuming it's the government administration cost of medicare uh medicaid but i'd have to do a deeper dive on it it. all they had a list of was government administration so the bottom the bottom line though is there is no evidence that that private insurers private for-profit insurers are any better at managing the cost of administration than public ones, than government ones, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think you could make some, there's some arguments you could make in terms of the, um, you know, that they invest more in technology, that they, you know, they're going to have better interfaces, whatever. I mean, there's, there's plenty of that type of things you could say, like, but I don't, but for every, I, I think, and again, this is sort of a personal view on this, but mm-hmm. for every efficiency it creates, it also has incentives to create inefficiencies on the other side of it. Okay. Right? So, and so for example, you know, the, the number of doctors, uh, offices that have had, you know, have to hire a full-time person, like you may have like two, three, four doctors in a practice, and then they've got a full-time person that they're spending money on to do collections from, you know, health insurers, right? Because somebody has to spend their time making sure the forms are filled out. And then when they get rejected, chasing down the claim again and calling them to make them, you know, to make them pay. And when they don't, when the payment doesn't show up, they're going to, I mean, and these are, these are not like deadbeat companies, right? These are incredibly profitable companies, but there's a massive incentive for them to, to not pay out on time. Right? Mm. And, so they intentionally and this, pay and this is this is demo- this is demonstrably true right that they will like they would hold on to payments knowing hospitals might be hurting for cash they would hold back on paying hospital until the very end of the, the cycle like uh, you know the end of the month or the end of a pay cycle or and then they'll just say like well we'll settle the claim for 80 percent of what we owe you because they know they're cash strapped and they'll just sort of take what they can get Right, so they have a huge incentive to aggressively manage the cost, the, the cash flow cost, um, which creates, which in, you could say is theoretically saving you cost. But on the other hand, is it because like you're now going to then have all this duplicative cost of people trying to reconcile that and fight it, and you know, I mean, so so I don't, I'm not sure that 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 that's the type of saving that is the most efficient or best way to do it, right? Like to yeah. save the money. Um, but then so this is even more importantly, I think yeah. if you look at for-profit models, 
and I think maybe I should have led with this because I think it's even more important. Mm-hmm. They have no incentive to reduce the overall spending on healthcare. Mm. Right. I mean, it's like they talk about like, you know, we could talk about like, let's say food companies, right? If the population grows 1% and the average person needs 2000 calories a day or something, right? The only way they can get you, they can grow is to get you to pay more per calorie or to eat more calories per person. Otherwise Mm. they're just trapped in a 1% growth rate. Mm. Right. And that's before any like, you know, startups and, you know, market share losses. So like, but the industry for food is going to grow 1%. Similarly, you could say like healthcare demand grows kind of at 1%, then demographics probably push it a bit higher than that. But then if you want to grow faster than that, you actually need costs to go up. Mm -hmm. And and all you need to do is show people that you're, you know, your customer that you're quote saving them by it didn't go up as much as the list price did. Yes. Right. Which, yes. Let's let's talk. About, we'll go back to boiling the frog. Talk about um, the boiled frog is the list pricing you get from a hospital for an MRI. Look yeah. at what that is now. It's insanity. Like the, what is the, it? I mean, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. Right. Yeah. Everything's hundreds and thousands of dollars, and it's the lunacy is nobody pays it except an uninsured person who just got hit with a bill, and then they just don't pay it anyway. Yeah. So these list prices are meaningless. Nobody actually goes into a hospital or a physician and pays the quote list price. Oh, we saw, I remember, and I can't remember which kid it was, but when Sarah, when we were in the hospital, I remember we got a line item bill or we saw the line item bill for labor and delivery. And I can't remember what they charged for an ibuprofen, but it was at least three digits. Yeah. It was yeah, at it's like least $150 for, for an ibuprofen. For pill. one. And then, and then your healthcare bill, your healthcare insurer's bill is like the actual cost you were paid is $25 for the ibuprofen. So we saved you a lot of money. Yeah. It's, it's very funny the way we started off with the, uh, with the, the underwhelming nature of low expectations in our presidential race. And now we're finding this appear again in healthcare where <laughs> where so it, it just to, just to recap here. So effectively what you're saying is that if you are a private insurer, your incentive is to hold on to that money and underpay as much as possible. And so what you're going to do is you're going to hold on to that money. You're going to make doctors and hospitals call to collect, and then you're going to try to settle for a percentage of that to look like the, the, the knight in shining armor who just saved you from having to spend a a 2000% markup and only is making you spend a a 1500% markup on the costs. And, and, I would have to assume too that any cost savings that they imagine any cost savings they engineered are probably offset by the fact that doctors and hospitals have to pay for collections departments to come and get the money. Right. Right. Not to mention that do you really want the place that you're, you know, where the care is being provided to be constantly cash strapped. Yeah. Well, yeah, like under investing in capex or under investing in new things that they could be doing, like yeah. to make the hospital better, like because they're because they have to constantly worry about cash flow needs. Yeah. I mean, is that again? Is this getting you the best outcome? I think there's probably a significant argument that it's inflating costs and not really because then they have to they have to you know raise their prices separately to cover like to cover that right. Yeah. So, they say like, oh, well, we're not going to get paid on a bunch of this, so we need our list price to be higher than that, and it causes the hospitals to then to consolidate, right? So they're all now that the hospitals across the country have been consolidating again into large um, groups, and then the physician practices have been affiliating themselves with hospitals and or selling themselves outright to hospitals to yeah. get to try to leverage that, um, you know, to use that leverage to negotiate higher fees. And again, that that's all well and good, except that then the health insurer actually wants these costs to go up. They just want to, they just want it to go up at a rate that's you know low enough that you're that they can sort of say, uh, well, you know, the the list pricing went up seven, but we only went up five, so you know we saved you some money. Hi there. 
I hope you're enjoying this episode and I wanted to take a quick break and ask for your help spreading the word about You Don't Have to Yell. Now, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that our two-party duopoly gives us a system where we award office for not being the worst candidate. And as a result, we get the second worst form of government around. Now, we can change that by breaking down some of the structural barriers that keep third parties out of the conversation. And I need your help to get the word out. For starters, share YDHTY on your device right now. Just click on it. It's going to say share somewhere. Click that button and everybody's going to know about it. Now, number two, if you haven't already, subscribe to ensure that you get a piping hot serving if you don't have to yell at your door every Thursday. That's all you need to do. A couple finger pokes and you're done. So let's make 2020 the last decade America has to settle for the second worst. As always, thank you for your support. We touched on this in June when you were just talking about the nature of the economy and how we're we are effectively devolving into uh, effectively a, a, a private well, monopolies, more or less. You know, acquisitions have delivered almost like a centrally planned economy. Is is that same phenomenon happening in healthcare, where you've got health insurers starting to consolidate, and and we're eventually going to get to the point where maybe there's only one or two health insurers? In yeah, the interestingly, States? it's funny. I saw a. Um, I found a paper on the uh, healthcare insurance market concentration, and I was actually surprised that it said the largest five companies share, according to this paper, went down from 2001 to 2016. Hmm. But I, but I'm actually, I think there have been two mergers since 2016. I'd have to go back and double check, but I think there have been two large mergers since then. Um, yeah. So I suspect that number is is still very high and probably has gone back up a bit um and then the largest 10 companies you know has drifted higher over the last few years and again i'd say it probably has drifted back up some more so i was a bit surprised by the number in 2001 so i'd have to i'd have to do more work on this to get real comfortable with it but i mean because i i you know we've had a slew of mergers in this space so i'm a little surprised by this data so um because i don't think that people starting up a bunch of health insurance companies uh yeah uh, well, and so that's that's for profit. What's the what's the incentive structure? And this is a dumb question, but what, what what's the incentive structure for not for profit? Then I should really know this. Well, I mean, the, I mean, it's not that different, right? Yeah. Except that you could. I mean, there's a couple ways you could structure that, right? Like if you were part of, um, I mean, the, the way the not for profit, like the Blue Cross Blue Shields, used to be. Right, and I'd have to go back and refresh myself on all this because mm-hmm. it's been a few years. But, um, but you know, these were not-for-profit companies that were almost like mutual insurance companies. You know what I mean? So they could yeah. like dividend you back out savings or kind of that sort of setup. Okay. Um, but again, there's no profit margin because like this is, you know, what I was saying earlier was the that the 36 billion of profits for for-profit healthcare. That's that's profit. That's not like their cost. That's yes. the profit. So like that's all like the for like the what you're paying to private owners of of for profit health insurance, you know, for the capital effectively that they're that they've put into this. Yeah. So if we talk about that one trillion dollar overage that we're paying that $1 trillion premium as a nation that we've paid that, that, that amount is roughly, you know, again, almost 4% of the total or, you know, almost 4% of the total of that variance is just going to profits, not going to the, the costs. Now, interesting fun fact here, uh, Switzerland who is a country or, you know, a country very similar to us in terms of cultural outlook on government and independent self-reliance. Um, they actually have the system that uh, the Affordable Care Act was modeled after. So they are the, they are the inventors of the, uh, of the require of the healthcare requirement, the requirement that you buy healthcare. Um, they spend 
like I said, 5% less. So they spend $1 trillion less. Key difference. Health insurers have to be not-for-profit. They are required by law. You cannot make a profit as a health insurer in Switzerland. And even if you tick out, like, so even if we said our differential, I mean, Switzerland is one of the uh, the big four in terms of pharmaceutical R&D spending, but mm-hmm. that's still, we would the U.S. trounces it in that amount. So even if you took out that, that differential is really only about probably 10% of the difference. The United States has a system where there is that incentive. And so it could probably be argued then that with the existence of that incentive uh, creates enough big players in the market where healthcare inflation can just continue to run rampant effectively. Am yeah, I- no, and I think your, your point is actually really well made by the public versus private uh, spending data as a percentage of GDP. So if you look at the U.S., spends mm-hmm. like close to 18% of GDP on healthcare, right? And roughly, you know, eight, 9% of that is public spending and the other, you know, nine, 10% of that, or, you know, eight, eight, eight to 9% of that is, is private spending, right? And Switzerland, by comparison, spends about 8% in public and its private is, you know, maybe 4%. So you, okay. we're spending twice as much on private as we how they're spending as 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 places like in Switzerland. So yeah, that's where I think it that sort of I think that sort of supports my point, right? Yeah, the, the that this the system we have is actually driving healthcare costs up, not down. It's not helping you save money on healthcare. It's it's actually costing you more. Ugh. yeah, big surprise. So and and obviously, like it's it's. It should be noted, it's always convenient to find a boogeyman. Uh, it, healthcare is a very complex thing. Uh, there are many players, and certainly, like, you know, insurers aren't alone in driving up the costs. But they. No, and, and as any statistician would say, we gotta, we got to look at this across, like, you know, the geographies, or to look at the, the demographics, or got to look at, like, there's a lot of things you'd want to try to unpack there before you make the generalizations about it. But yeah, but that being said, I think, look, I mean, we can, that data remains kind of true across all of the major, you know, developed countries, right? Like that they all spend roughly eight to 10% on public. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, and then their, their private healthcare spend is a fraction of what we spend in the U S so that it just doesn't, something doesn't quite, makes sense there. It doesn't. And the the interesting thing is I tried to dive into campaign contributions to figure it out. So healthcare sector as a whole, and this is according to the Center for Responsive Politics, is the number two industry in terms of uh, campaign contributions. Uh, so they're they're number two finance insurance real estate and finance and insurance also mind you is is as a, a a different arm altogether but very well could insure uh could could include health insurers um healthcare is two so uh and and the interesting thing is when you look at the information you know it's easy to say it's easy to say to yourself well you know just follow the money um the interesting thing is there is a fairly balanced uh, there's a fairly balanced um, rate of contribution between the two sectors in terms of like their split. So they're typically it's like half and half for uh, Republican Democrat, uh, more or less. Healthcare, oddly enough, and this is where it gets really weird, healthcare has actually flipped flip towards Democrats over the last, uh, over the last few years. So they used to be, they used to actually be predominantly Republican in terms of where they donated that amount flipped in terms of campaign contributions. So, um, you can see right up in the, uh, interestingly enough, 2008 was the first year they spent more on campaign contributions than uh, for Democrats and Republicans. And 
that trend is continued. You know, there have been periods of time where they've where the Republicans have peaked their heads up again. But for the most part, since the Obama years, um, the uh, the campaign contributions have continued to lean the favor of Democrats. And I don't know whether that is because they're trying to sort of like have a voice uh, in uh, an environment that's friendly to the idea of a public option that might threaten them. I don't I, I don't quite understand. Yeah, I, I suspect you might be on to that. I, we'd have to try to track down some more commentary and, and data on this yeah. to get to get any real granularity but i suspect the answer you've you've kind of hit on the answer so i'll say that with the caveat that i don't have anything really to back this up other than having been around and watching the discussion and talking to some of these companies um mm-hmm. they I, I think the industry actually got very comfortable with the aca like quote unquote obamacare um, yeah. but let's just call it the affordable care act because obamacare is just you know, littered with the political insanity. Yeah. Um, so I think they they actually were pretty comfortable with ACA because it, it landed on some solutions to some problems. You know, it wasn't perfect by no means, and they had plenty of complaints about it. Mm-hmm. And if anything, that sort of raises the question of why they're lobbying is because they would love to fix it um, as opposed to repealing it. And that's where mm. the Republicans have gone the other way, where – you know, by branding it Obamacare, they've whipped everybody into this frenzy that they like they need to get rid of it and it's the world's worst thing. And yet they mm-hmm. really haven't given any cohesive alternative plan. Mm-hmm. Um and and I don't think it, it sounds it maybe sounds surprising, but the industry itself wants predictability, not uncertainty. And so I, they don't want to go into this, well, what, what, like repeal it, and then what do we have, and then what's that going to look like? That, that That's actually probably a worse environment for, for yeah. planning purposes. Because, and then is it so bad that then we get a, a full, you know, Medicare for all when everyone's mad, right? So if you're like, you know, if you're playing a long game, you actually want some like fixed, stable version of the ACA that goes on in perpetuity. Yeah. Because that's actually like now a, a game with defined rules that you can play in versus this t- tilting it toward repeal it, let the free market go insane, like, or, you know, everybody should be run, have beyond Medicare. Like the more polar that looks, the industry's scared to death of that discussion. Yeah. I mean, and the, the thing I think folks ought to take into consideration here is there's this, there's this idea that the business community inherently hates regulation and, and inherently uh, loves deregulation in favor of profit. And, and to an extent that's true. The flip side of it is though, is what business wants as well as they want stability and predictability. You cannot have a business in an, an unstable environment. And in a lot of cases, I think when they see the pitchforks and torches off in the distance and they realize that the government's kind of trying to, 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 to placate that population a bit, uh, I think they're content to pay al- play along rather than have things go crazy. And so, yeah, so I would, I would agree with you there. I would say there's definitely a, a bigger incentive for insurers to kind of keep things status quo and just learn how to influence the system there, which in a lot of ways is like the worst of both worlds. Well, and, 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 you know? the, assumption, <laughs> the assumption is that like somehow Obamacare was worse for everybody, right? Like that the ACA was terrible and the entire healthcare industry hates it. The hospital systems liked it quite a bit. Um, yeah. They all benefited pretty dramatically from it. Right, because most of the, the the hospital systems were already writing off an enormous amount of their revenue to just bad debt, like mm. the people who are coming. Because because like we th- let's not pretend like we don't have universal health care. We do have universal health care. Like you show up in an emergency room, you will get treated. Like they're not sending people like turning you away and sending you out into the street. Right. So you will get treated. So it's like you're paying for it anyway. It just ends up in the system as a, as a cost. It's just not, it's extremely inefficient and a public health disaster in some cases mm-hmm. to leave it out wandering around. Like, I mean, talking about this in the context of a pandemic is actually probably a good way to think about it. Like yeah. if someone's sick, 
do you want them to go someplace and get treated or just wander around untreated? Mm-hmm. Like, so locking people out of any access is bananas. Like, yeah. So, so the so, so, but that's not even really the issue because we've had access. Like, so you can show up in an emergency room and get treated. That's not, but the problem is that's the highest cost setting. So that's a terrible place for you to show up for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Is to be in the emergency room. That's, you know, if we could get you in front of somebody earlier to head off the problem, then before it turns into something that needs the emergency room, um, yeah. then the better, right? Because other, cause that's now going to be an enormous amount of cost by the time it shows up there. Um, and so the, I think when you had sort of the, the increase in, in coverage by the implementation of the ACA, like the, the hospitals on balance actually were better off um, mm-hmm. because they were able to sort of stop having to look at all of this as just complete bad debt. And they knew that most people now coming in, were going to have some kind of insurance if, yeah. Um, and so I don't, you know, and, and I think even the health insurance market, you know, again, I'm, I'm speaking sort of without data to back this up, but I, I did, I do have had sort of conversations with some of these companies and the, the, you know, they were, I think it fits with what you were saying. They, do they have complaints about ACA? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of stuff they have complaints about with it. But they'd rather fix that by degrees than blow it up entirely. Yeah. Um, Because what it comes back to is the fact that we call this healthcare insurance at all is sort of stupid, right? Because insurance implies you're underwriting a risk that may or may not happen. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got healthcare costs, and they're going to access the healthcare system for something for varying degrees, right? With almost 100% certainty, you're going to use access, need access to healthcare at some point. So like how many people in the country really have just like, they are born at home, never see a doctor their entire life, and then die at home in their bed without ever seeing a, a doctor? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in modern America, like, tell me how many people that is. Yeah, it's the same. The it's the same with the whole idea of like supply and demand influencing the market. You you can't. There's there's inelastic demand in healthcare. Nobody waits for like the price of appendectomies to go down before they get their appendix taken out. Right. You know? It's an inelastic good, and it's one that has you know a huge principal agent like issue with like where the uninformed the person buying the care doesn't really have any sense of what they're buying. Yeah. Um, and and really they're not you know, they're really not educated enough to, to have a, a good opinion about what they should be buying. I mean, this is sort of where my, you know, uh, my wife and I joke every time we see like the pharmaceutical ads on TV, you know, ask your doctor about this. It's like, what a stupid, what, that must make doctors just insane. I know. Like, people come in and ask about these drugs that you're just like, I'll let you know if I think you need it. Why are you asking me about this? Yeah. Well, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. I've got, it's like there's one for schizophrenia on TV the other day. And I was like, really? You're advertising this on television. You're like, yeah, maybe I have schizophrenia. Oh, or a certain, (laughs) or a certain type of dry eye. Like, do I have that type of dry eye? It's the, an interesting, a funny and refreshing thing I saw though, was now there's prescription medication for like pets coming out. There was one for, it was some kind of like dog psoriasis. I can't remember exactly what it was. And I was sitting there watching it and I was thinking to myself, like, I bet you anything, there was some like pharmaceutical company trying to develop, you know, something for human psoriasis. And in their tests, they're like, well, it doesn't work on people, but it worked on dogs. So could we sell this? And, and they just kind of threw it out there. And you know what I'll say? I'll, I'll put this out there as like a nice, a nice little, uh, maybe compromise between the American population and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, if somebody wants to spend an exorbitant amount of money to treat their dog's psoriasis, charge them whatever you want. Like whatever pet meds you can make in the R&D process for humans, like go ahead, flood the market. If somebody wants to spend an exorbitant sum of money treating their cat, you know, their cat's dry eye or whatever you know go nuts do that make your money that way just don't gouge the people just please (laughs) don't gouge the people gouge the pet owners if you want to spend you know 
Most right? of these companies have now split their healthcare, their animal health divisions from their uh, from their human health divisions. Bad idea. Just yeah. gouge them. That's cool. It. The yeah. uh, no, I it, it's so yeah. There's where where how do we get onto that? The point was only that coming back to the purchasing of this, like the idea that yeah. you even call this a healthcare insurance market is crazy. What we're really saying is it's like healthcare payment and administration, right? It's not it's not really insurance um, because you know everyone's going to access it to varying degrees and that's almost and that's with almost 100% certainty so by mm-hmm. definition that's not insurance the whole concept of insurance is that you're paying premiums on something that might not happen and when it happens it's catastrophic right going to insurance and paying an insurance premium and then having it cover your annual physical and you know, the, the birth of your children and every, I mean, your allergy, your flu shot every year. Mm -hmm. Like these are all things that like, it's, you know, and this is sort of a well-worn analogy, but you know, it's like saying your insurance, your car insurance covers maintenance. Like it doesn't, like it doesn't, right. It covers catastrophe. Like it covers an accident or something like somebody hits you or you hit something or like, but it doesn't cover just like getting the brake pads changed. Like, yeah. so, I mean, and this is, this is sort of where I, I think the part of the problem lies. And this is where the whole debate around, you know, pre-existing conditions comes from. Because on, on the one hand, I think it's sort of cruel. Um, and we can talk about the, and we can do it, talk about it as a segue to the whole concept of it being tied, of healthcare being tied to your job. But, mm-hmm. but this, so they, somehow if you, one of the, the, you know the sorry person who who sort of ends up with a condition that is now classified as pre-existing and you're kind of like uninsurable right so again we don't want to like limit your access to healthcare but at the same time what are you supposed to pay list price for this now that's just mm-hmm. like it's like indentured servitude at some point if you're if you're now kind of having to be you know either just die from this condition or go bankrupt because of it like that just seems that just seems crazy. It's, um, you know, and, real but, but at the same mm-hmm. time, the other counter side of that argument is if something's pre-existing, it's not insurance. Like if we already know we're going to have to pay for something, I'm not insuring anything. It's just a shared cost. Yeah. Right. Re- yeah. Do you know, actually this is a, this is a good segue too into the whole idea of it being tied to your employer. Cause right now, so one of my kids, and I probably mentioned this on this before, one of my kids is a type one diabetic. Right. So we, we, he needs insulin. And this year, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden we like our costs have just, the the amount we're asked to pay is just shot through the roof and there's no account as to why. Uh, And so I still have to call up the insurer and figure this all out. But wow, that'll be block out a day. That'll be a fun, right? That'll yeah, that's fun, well. Like, that's six hours on the phone I, trying to get I an answer about that. Yeah, I haven't had time. I literally have not had time. And the thing I keep thinking to myself is like, what is this going to look like once he can't be on my health insurance anymore? Like, how is in God's name is he going to be able to uh, not like afford it with insurance? Right. You know. Right. Yeah, I mean, the worst case is that he ends up on some terrible health insurance with a on whatever job he has, or he's, you know, the quote positive is that he's making so little that he's on Medicaid. Yeah, and and insulin, mind you, is a drug that's that's been around for. Oh yeah, no, this is not. Yeah, it's not like cutting edge technology. No, like, and and this is you know. And again, and this is kind of fits my point about like, I, I like that the type one diabetic is actually one of the, the best examples of this. You're just born with it. Right. It's just a congenital issue. It's not like, it's not like, you know, you went out and, and, you know, slurped down big gulps and, you know, six Big Macs a day. And now you're a fat shit who has type two diabetes. Like, yes, this is like, that's easily solvable. I, I can, I can fix that for you. Like, yeah. <laughs> but you know, type one diabetic, you, you, you're just, your body doesn't make it like, so now you need access to this thing. And like this idea that this now is just like a a cost that you have to carry. I mean, look, some people might say, okay, you know, if you're this true libertarian free market, every man for himself, I guess there's an argument to be made for that. 
But I guess I'd come back at these are just acceptable shared costs because we all assume that you could be the one who comes up snake eyes for and you have some congenital issue. And like just locking you out of like an employable market because you become incredibly expensive, right? To like, that just seems, that just seems suboptimal to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, not to mention the amount of costs that are incurred when this person goes untreated. Oh, well, yeah. No, because again, my point, if he doesn't get insulin, right, then let me just take a, let's take a worst case and we'll take it out of your family. So, you know, they have to think horrible things about your own um, potential. happening to you. I've already been there. So, yeah. But like, but yeah, no, it's like the complications of diabetes, if it goes unmanaged are, this is exactly my point of what I was saying about showing up in the emergency room. Like if you think you're saving the system costs by not giving them insulin, like, Mm -hmm well, wait till he just goes to the hospital emergency room and has to have an amputation and then like PT and like all the, you know, I mean, like that's just, that's just so stupid. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, at one point there was a Medicaid insurance company that actually had given cell phones to a great number of their population that didn't have them because they did the cost analysis that, they'd like to be able to just call you and remind you to go to the appointments. Cause they were like, Oh God, like we, these people, like people with type two diabetes who are not managing it. We need a way to manage this disease and get in touch with them and make sure that they're going to appointments because if they don't, they'll go to the hospital and then it's going to hit us out of the blue with yeah. like an enormous amount of cost. So they had done the analysis to say like, if we just s- send them a phone and so we can call them, that that yeah. would be better off. That we'd spend less. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that that's where I think these, like this idea that, uh, that you save money by tamping down these administrative costs in the short run are, are probably highly questionable about some of the assumptions there. Yeah. Did those cell phones have a data plan or was it just like call? No, I like, think they were probably just base model phones because they did um, it with. I think I'd have to go like back a and find bug the, or something. I have to go back and find the actual analysis. I know it was for they had done it with some type two diabetics, and they had also done it with um, pregnancies because they were afraid that the prenatal care was not going to be good. And so, yeah, and then so if there's something runs into a problem, then they're just going to get hit with a whopping bill out of the, out of the blue. I would love to see the insurance company phone. Like some, it's like a flip phone, bro. Yeah, I was thinking some <laughs> Motorola like flip or some like old Nokia that you need a backpack to carry. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so so I guess then you know there's there's we've talked a lot about the the insurance side of things, but the second part of that is the employer. I just never understood the, like why we have this sort of presumed like idea that healthcare is supposed to be like tied to your employment. And I, Mm -hmm. and I, I just don't understand where that comes from. Like I, why do we, why do we assume that's a, that's a proper functioning market? Like I, I don't, I mean, all you're really getting by the benefit of that is that, you know, employers know that their employees have health coverage. Um, and I suppose it's acts as a, as a, a benefit or a perk that in some way, like one healthcare coverage is maybe better than another, but I don't know that anyone's ever really taken a job just, just because of the the health benefits. Um, and I, and I, you know, my, I guess a high level, I can't help thinking that it decreases labor mobility. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you're afraid you're going to lose your health insurance, if you leave your job, like that has a societal cost, right? Like, I think you know, on the one hand, it, it gives you know corporations more leverage over their employees, um, especially if, God forbid, you have a pre-existing condition. So now you're mm-hmm. worried about it, whether it would be covered if you switched to health insurers, right? So now you become again, it's a, it sort of borders on indentured servitude. Like you, you now can't really think about leaving. Or, I mean, let's even think about it from a more dynamic and entrepreneurial sort of angle. You, you certainly aren't going are gonna to be worried about leaving your job to go start, you know, a business, right? And taking mm-hmm. the risk and, and the, the vibrancy that brings to the economy. Like if you're just sort of, 
you know, well, I guess it's safe for me to just stay in my middle management job at XYZ company because the healthcare benefits are good. Like that just seems like a weird system to me. And I, I don't really understand why we've landed on that being a proper functioning market. Yeah. Well, it's a bottleneck. It's a bottleneck because you have these people who are, are, and it, let's just kind of take a step back, use the startup example. You know, most startup founders now are fairly young. Uh, part of the reason is the, the, the risks uh, involved, you know, one of those being healthcare. Um, yet at the same time, uh, you, you look at the folks who are maybe in their 30s, 40s, have kids, have responsibilities, but also have experience and might not need to fail five times before getting their first successful startup. Um, those people are really hamstrung because now they've got responsibilities that keep them in their current space. Yeah. And so we're, we're really limiting the flow of talent, which is another, which is an equally beneficial thing to the free market. So I think kind of, kind of tying this all together, it seems to me what we have is we have a system that has very little incentive to contain costs, um, actually has more incentive to inflate them, uh, that arguably doesn't deliver a better quality than any other system out there. And to top it all off, restricts the flow of talent and restricts the ability for free market for the free market to regulate wages and mobility in other parts. I'll give you two things that I've always thought the healthcare system could probably use from um, however you want to structure it. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two, I, and they're by no means the only things that the healthcare system could use. So don't, don't let me, don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm going to propose these two things. And that's like, that will solve it. It will work perfectly after that. One, we need earlier ways to triage uh, at low cost settings. So mm-hmm. what I've always, I've always used it as the example of is, um, you know, what the, what the, the the grown up world needs is the school nurse, right? Like yeah. my my tummy hurts. Like, well, do, are you throwing up? No. Did you eat anything weird? And like, no. Well, if it's not better in twenty four hours, I then call your doctor. I think you're fine though. Um, mm-hmm. Like versus you know going to show up at like uh, your doctor for no reason when you probably could have just waited another 12 hours and it would have got away Mm -hmm. or that you show up, God forbid you show up in the emergency room for something that by no means was an emergency. Um, So I, I think the the concept of having an earlier triage, and I think we're getting that to some degree in sort of telemedicine and these minute clinics. And some of that's really come up in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. and starting to take off, but so that'll, that'll help some. um, But it, it's certainly, um, you know, that, that's, I think, uh, an example of, you know, something we could really use is ways to triage earlier before mm-hmm. you get to a higher cost setting. Second, it comes back, hits this sort of insurance market in most insurance markets, you know, property casualty and other things, there's, there's reinsurance markets, right. Where you offload the excessive risks. So you, you take, you know, see property underwriting, you know, there's reinsurance that is, you know, where if the, if the losses go above a certain level, the insurer mm-hmm. buys more insurance itself, right? Yeah. So like, I've never understood why we couldn't have a publicly funded reinsurance that, helps, that helps take the, the catastrophic cases off the private healthcare insurers. Now, granted, I know that would be a tough system to sort of create, and there's lots of room for fraud and that. Like, we'd have to come up with the way that that would get structured. But just conceptually, what I'm saying is, if we think you know a pre-existing condition like type one diabetes is going to cost a risk pool a certain amount of money as soon as someone enters it, well, then you just say, all right, well, this has been tagged as a as a high cost pre-existing condition. We're going to have to reinsure part of our our risk pool for this. And so that, that's, I, I think some kind of version of whether you call that a quote public option, which sort of implies that they're competing with for private, like with for-profit private health insurers on like a retail level. I, I don't know, maybe, I mean, I guess, I think there's more, there's more support for that among the populace than there is for Medicare for all. Um, but is to sort of just fix ACA by adding that. But I want, but no one's really talked about like just an, an alternative version. Like, can we, can we just come up with a way to make the public option, quote unquote, 
more of just a, a like taking the combined losses from catastrophic cases out of the system and easing the burden on health insurers who don't want who then just kind of like don't you know reduces their need to kind of push for you know banning pre-existing condition all that kind of you know what i mean like um so that that that's those are sort of two ideas so i think dr mike's recommendation of an earlier triage system to kind of weed out the folks who might go into the emergency room for like gas and then reinsurance to again let's call it take the toxic assets out of the insurance pool it's a very terrible analogy but uh it seems to work and then I'll throw in Dr. Dan's recommendation, which is just require not require all insurance companies to be not for profit. We do those things. We've all of a sudden, we've changed the incentive structure. Uh, we've created a situation where now insurers don't necessarily have to worry so much about the folks with pre-existing conditions. Uh, the folks with pre-existing conditions still get treated and we keep the nuts out of the emergency room. There you go. Does that sum it up? We solved it. We solved it. Problem solved, everyone. Let's go on to the next one. So to sum that all up, what we've been told about all that extra money going to develop the best drugs and medical devices is largely false. And we have a system where insurers are incentivized to inflate costs to pad their numbers. And all of the costs seems to be going to administrative overhead. Now, this might be a total coincidence. But if you go to OpenSecrets.org, again, a site that looks at campaign finance contributions and lobbying by industry, a quick review of the numbers shows us that of all the outside money spent by the insurance industry on campaign contributions and lobbying, almost 25% of that comes from three entities, Cigna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and America's Health Insurance Companies. This is a health insurance industry trade group. And those are just three of the largest contributors. There are plenty of health insurers to go around in there, but correlation isn't causation or anything, so I will make zero assumptions. As I said at the end of JM's episode, and I'll say it again, we are not choosing private enterprise over bureaucracy and healthcare. We're simply choosing a bureaucracy beholden to the shareholders as opposed to the voters. Now, you can find a breakdown of those numbers on my most recent blog article on YDHTY.com on Friday. Now, next week, I've got Chara Torres-Spellacy to discuss her book, Political Brands, which discusses how corporate money combined with consumer advertising techniques uh, have us to the point where political candidates are marketed much like Fruit Loops and voters tend to seek out political candidates in much the same way. I just finished it, and I feel like I've done the political equivalent of looking into the Matrix. As always, music courtesy of Qualertac, YDHDY's editorial advisor, is Adam. Still have to think up a nickname that sticks, Yaffe. It is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.